Good morning. Um, so uh, this past week, Elise has been out of town, and Jack is like super busy and always out at rehearsals and things, and so that means that, that oftentimes I'm left on my own to eat, and I usually get my cues from whatever TV show I'm watching, and so I was watching a TV show and they were eating Chinese food, and so I thought, hey, I'll, let me order Chinese food. So I ordered Chinese food, and what's all of our favorite part about Chinese food? It's the fortune cookie at the end, right? So, you know, you've gotten a good fortune every once in a while where, where it says like, you know, you will meet a friendly stranger. They're incredibly specific, right? And they're always really, really important. Um, you know, fortune cookies are fun and kind of a little joke. We're going to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, telling the future in the Bible. Uh, not really. We're going to talk about prophecy in the Bible, but often we confuse those two things, right? Often we read prophecy in the Bible and we think, hey, it's like a fortune cookie. It's telling me what's going to happen. Like, but that's not really exactly how we read it, right? Um, last week, Keith started us off in the book of Matthew by talking a little bit about uh, something you may never have heard a message on, and that is the genealogy of Jesus in that very first chapter. So if you want to hear a good message about a genealogy, uh, you can go back and listen to last, last week's message, and it was really, really great. Some amazing and beautiful insights in there uh, that give us glimpses into who God is and what he's up to. Immediately following that in Matthew is uh, the, the story or the, the several small stories that we're really familiar with that sort of chronicle the birth of Jesus and all the events surrounding that, right? We, um, we hear that he is born of a virgin. We hear that he is born in Bethlehem. Um, we hear the story about the uh, magi that come from the east and Herod tries to find where this newborn king is supposed to be, but he doesn't find him and he gets mad. And then Joseph takes the family to Egypt and then they come back from Egypt and then they move to Nazareth. Like that whole story. And we hear it just about every holiday season. But the parts of it that we often skip over, at least I usually do, are the parts that say, and this happened so that the words of the prophet would be fulfilled. So why does Matthew do this? He does it five times from the end of chapter one through chapter two of Matthew. He keeps coming back and saying, so the words of the prophet would be fulfilled. This is what happened. And I have a little theory. I think the reason I always skip over it is because to me it just feels like a, a few little fortune cookies, right? It's just a little future telling. Matthew's engaging in, see, see, this is, see, it's coming true. All the things that were predicted by those fortune cookies and Isaiah and Hosea and all the other prophets, they're coming true, right? But that's not really what he's doing. He's not really talking about prophecy as future telling. So I want to talk a little bit, first of all, about what prophecy is, what the prophets were about and who they were, and then how we can read this part of Matthew in a more full way. So, first of all, let's get a little definition. What is prophecy? For most people, prophecy means what appears as the first definition in most dictionaries, foretelling or prediction of what is to come. However, using the prophets in this way is highly selective. This is interesting. Less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic. Other than that, less than 5% of prophecy in the Old Testament actually describes the new covenant age, like the period after Jesus. And after that, less than 1% concerns events that haven't happened yet. So what's, what are the prophets about? What are they actually doing here? This all comes from a book by uh, Fee and Stewart called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's a great little 
kind of handbook to help you understand the different types of literature, the different types of writing that appear in Scripture and how to understand them in their fullest. And, and they finish this section by saying, the prophets did indeed announce the future. So don't hear me wrong, that's not what I'm saying. The prophets did indeed announce the future, but it was usually the immediate future of Israel, Judah, and other nations surrounding them that they announced, rather than our future. So as we look at the prophets, uh, we look at the context in which they lived, right? So who were they and what did they do? What was their job? It's important to understand a little bit of the history of when these prophets were alive and when they were writing. If you know a little bit about biblical history in the Old Testament, you probably know that there were, at first there were no kings, there were some tribes, and then they wanted a king, and they got a king, and then they had another king, and that king was David, and he was great, and then David had a a son named Solomon. Solomon was king for a while, and a few kings after that got worse and worse and worse, until finally the kingdom split apart, there was civil war, there was fighting, things got really messy politically, and eventually both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom got conquered by other nations and that is sort of the state that Israel was in when Jesus came at at first it was Babylon then it was Assyria and then it was Greece and then it it was Rome I think in that order roughly Um, so they lived the prophets lived between these years of 760 and 460 BC this period of time where there was all this political upheaval and all these things going on and obviously there was no centralized place for them to worship there was no centralized authority a king of Israel And so the the prophets were there, essentially, to speak for God. They were messengers of God to the people who said, hey, this is what God is saying to you right now. Straighten up and fly right, right? And that's kind of what they were saying. That's that's Dwayne's summation of all the prophets in the Old Testament. (laughs) Straighten up and fly right, okay? That's kind of what they were doing. And their main job was enforcing the covenant. And that sounds pretty heavy, but the covenant was this relationship between God and Israel that was started with Abraham. When Abraham uh, and God had this interaction and God said, okay, if you keep your end of the bargain, I'll keep my end of the bargain. I'll be your people and you be faithful to me. And all along the way, Israel could not really ever be faithful. The prophets were there to remind people, hey, listen, you got to get back in, into the right way with God. You've got to get back, get away from idol worship, get away from the things that, that God doesn't want you to do. Be faithful to the covenant. That's what the prophets were there to do. So pretty much all the future predictions of the prophets were really things that came to pass within decades of what they said. When they said, hey, this will happen, something will be conquered, and this will happen, and you will be sent in exile, da, da, da. Those things tended to be things that were happening in the immediate present circumstances, Right? So now we get to Matthew. What is Matthew doing with these prophets? Matthew is not pointing to ancient predictions in order to, quote, prove who Jesus was to his readers. Matthew's not trying to prove anything to anybody here. Matthew's writing this gospel after Jesus has already risen from the dead. The proof of who Jesus was was the resurrection. So he doesn't need to start his book with, see, he really was from God because of these little fortune cookies that match up. That's not what he was doing. What he was doing was he was taking these prophetic writings, these holy scriptures, and he was repurposing them in a really beautiful way. He was saying, this this happened to Jesus, and look at the heart of God, how it connects. And Matthew can do that because he's a scripture writer, and he was inspired by the Spirit to write it. Like, it's a little dangerous for us to start pulling verses out of the prophets and say, oh, this came true, right? But, but Matthew does it because he can, and he takes these prophetic writings and he says, look at how beautiful it is that we see all these things converging in Jesus. He's trying to tell us 
who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and by extension, who God is and what God's kingdom is like. So we're going to look at each of these five little quotations of prophecy. And I just wanted to plant that seed in your head so you can, can see them maybe with fresh eyes. That it's not about telling the future and like, oh yeah, check that box. He, he was born of a virgin, check. He lived in Bethlehem, check. Like, that's, that's not it. They're really, really beautiful moments. So, the first one is in Matthew 1.22. Matthew finishes this little passage by saying, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's actually in the scripture. Matthew translates for us, which is wonderful. That actually comes from Isaiah 7.14. That's where the prophecy is. The prophecy in Isaiah is Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel, and it maybe sort of has a dual meaning. A lot of people look back and say, well, this might actually be messianic in nature, but it also had an application immediately to Isaiah's context. He was saying that this is what God is going to do. And in the context of Isaiah, that, as far as we know, no other virgin has ever conceived but the word virgin, interestingly, in the Hebrew can also mean young woman, right? So Isaiah is saying, a young woman is going to have a child, and we will call that child Emmanuel, God with us. And he was talking about his present context. Matthew takes that and says, guess what? Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. So what is Matthew trying to say by quoting this passage? He's trying to say that God has come to be with us in Jesus. Now, this is something we hear all the time in church and maybe take for granted a little bit. But I just want to remind you of how incredible this is. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. God, in his whole being, has come down into human form to be with us. Emmanuel that we talk about mostly in the holiday season, but that, that idea, God with us, means that he is here in human form. He lived the life that we are living. He, he had the limitations and the frailty of the humanity that we experience, and he, he lived that. He is with us. Now, I don't know about you, but that sort of makes it a little bit different, right? In the Old Testament, when God had to dwell in the Holy of Holies and only the priest could go in once a year, there was sort of this distance. It was sort of removed. But because of what Jesus has done, because of the tearing of that veil in the temple from top to bottom that Matthew writes about later in his gospel, God is with us. He is in and among us. And that, to me, is comforting. It is powerful. It, is, um, it helps me believe that God is truly walking alongside me. Matthew even talks, talks about it with the same language at the end, the very end, the very last verse in Matthew. He says, Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am Emmanuel. I am with you. Even when I'm gone, I am with you. So there's a lot of applications to this. And one of my favorite, just personally, um, I'm a big fan of contemplative prayer. Um, I think there's something really uh, really powerful and also really biblical about just sort of sitting in a contemplative state and sort of like listening, not using lots of words. And one of the ways that I do sometimes like to pray in a contemplative way is um, using a little bit of imagination. And I will sort of transport myself to a location that is really inspiring, maybe someplace outdoors in nature or uh, someplace else that really makes me feel peaceful and I literally imagine Jesus in his human form sitting next to me. And I look at him and we have a conversation. And it all happens sort of in my imagination. But imagining God 
as a person talking to me, that's pretty powerful for me. So Matthew's saying, hey, listen, God is with us. But there's a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 5, he talks about the, the Bethlehem story, right? When Herod asked these wise men, well, where is this king supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. For you, Bethlehem, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's from Micah. Jesus has come to be with us. Jesus has also come to be with the powerless. See, Bethlehem was not the seat of power. It was the city of David, so there was historical connection to the, the powerful king. But Bethlehem was not necessarily well-respected. It was not where the seat of power was, right? Jerusalem maybe could be considered the seat of power. In Matthew's day, maybe it was, um, maybe it was Caesarea. Maybe it was you know, someplace where the Roman governor lived. Maybe it was Rome. Like There were seats of power, and Bethlehem surely was not one of them. Why is Matthew bringing this up? Why is Matthew pointing this out? Because at the beginning of the story, he wants to make sure everybody knows this is not someone who is coming in power with the full power and authority of a kingdom with armies and governments and all of that force. Jesus is coming without power. He's coming to be with the powerless, to stand in solidarity with the powerless. And when he makes change, his whole revolution was done without the power of government and politics. He chose to ride in on a donkey, right? The, the, the story we, we tell on, on uh, Palm Sunday. And he chooses to ride in on a donkey, not a horse. He chooses to go in on a lowly way because he's coming to be with the powerless. So, what does this mean for us? Jesus talks about the first will be last, the last will be first. I think too often we as followers of Jesus want to align ourselves with power. We want to say, man, if only we could make some change. Let's, let's see if we can gather this, this sort of political power and momentum and, and try to really fight for, in, you know, fight for the justice, right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try to be powerful and fight against the injustice. It's, it's great to be against injustice. But it's not the way of Jesus, and it's frustrating, and it's, it's sort of like, doesn't make any sense. This makes no sense. The first will be last. The last will be first. What are you talking about? But that's how Jesus did it, guys. It was sort of upside down. It was like, I'm going to lay down my life, and you should lay down your life too. That's how we make change. Jesus comes to align himself with the powerless to, to help encourage, to help inspire, to help to, to rescue. But he doesn't come in power to give that rescue. He comes powerless himself also. And I think that's what Matthew's trying to point out here. He's setting the tone for the rest of this story that he's about to tell. And he's saying, Jesus is God come to be with us, and Jesus is God coming to be with the powerless. Later on in chapter 2, so he got up, he took the child, this is Joseph by the way, Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Joseph is running for his life because he, he hears from God, he hears that, okay, it's going to be dangerous in a hot second because Herod's about to do something really bad. So they go to Egypt. But what is this Hosea 
Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. This is really interesting because in Hosea, God is speaking through Hosea and is talking about when the nation of Israel had been in captivity in Egypt. And in the story, the way Hosea is telling it, my son is Israel, the nation of Israel. And so God is saying, out of Egypt, I called my son, I called my people, I called Israel. Here's what's beautiful and fascinating. Jesus becomes Israel. God has a covenant with Israel. God has a covenant agreement and says, okay, you do your part, I'll do my part. Like I said a minute ago, Israel can't keep their end of the deal. They keep failing, they keep falling short. So what does God do? God sets in motion a plan to rescue that whole covenant situation by providing one single person who can stand in the place of Israel and actually fulfill the covenant. Not only does Jesus fulfill the covenant, but he takes on the punishment that was due for breaking the covenant all in himself, thereby fulfilling the covenant and making this relationship okay making this whole covenant thing come to fulfillment. That's what's happening. So Matthew is calling back to that saying, listen, Jesus isn't just a person who has come to, to be a good teacher. He is literally the new Israel. He has come out of Egypt just like Hosea said about Israel. And he has come to rescue us and renew and restore this covenant. Which Jesus says as he sits at the table with his disciples and he says, I am the new covenant. It is my blood poured out for you that is going to be the covenant. No longer the law, no longer Abraham, no longer any of that. I am the new covenant. So what are we saying here? Let me go back. Because I want to point out the phrase that I came up with here on the bottom. Jesus has come to be with the failures. <laughs> Guess what? You and I are the failures. Israel were the failures, right? Jesus has come to be with the people who can't live up to the perfection of the covenant, and that's all of us. And Jesus has come to stand in the place of us for, for that transactional thing that happens with the covenant so it can be done with. No more law, no more punishment, no more condemnation. Jesus has come to stand in solidarity with those of us who can't keep up with perfection. So that's good news, folks. You know why? Because we don't have to worry about perfection anymore. We don't have to worry about, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I don't measure up. There are so many people who do so much more good for the poor or the homeless, or there are so many more people who are better at being a Christian than me, or gosh, I just don't read my Bible enough, or I don't pray enough. Like, like whatever you're using to measure your worth in God's eyes, forget it, forget it. Because Jesus has come to stand with the failures. Those of us who can't keep up that, that idea of perfection, we don't have to. Now, there is a reason for us to, to try our best to not do things that pull us away from God and things that cause harm and pain to other people. So we do try to not do those things and we try to make sure that we are following what Jesus wants us to do. But at the end of the day, as Paul says, there is now no more condemnation for any of us, right? So Jesus has come to be with the failures. He is the new covenant. And that is what Matthew is pointing out here. A few verses later, after Joseph takes his family to Egypt, we have this terrible, awful piece that we normally skip over at Christmas time because it's such a, just a heartbreaking situation. But remember, this is a brutal, brutal time in history, right? And so Herod is mad that he can't figure out where this new king has been born, and he knows he's been born sometime in the last two years, and so what he does is he just orders every boy under the age of two in the region to be killed. And obviously, if a tragedy like that happened to a place 
you can imagine the weeping and the mourning and the, the crying. And this is what Matthew says. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I want to say again, it's really important that like the prophetic writings are not future prediction and this is not in any way indicating that God actually planned or or caused this sort of tragedy to happen that's not how God works but what Matthew is doing is he's saying this thing that was written in Jeremiah we can see it reflected in the nature of who Jesus is right now and what I think is beautiful about this in the midst of that sort of pain and suffering Jesus comes into the world he doesn't come into the world in a com comfy, cushy palace, born to kings and queens. He doesn't come into the world with pomp and circumstance, right? He doesn't come into the world like every royal baby that's been born in, the, in England in the last 10 years, right? Like we're like, oh, there's a new baby in the line, like whatever. Like that's not how Jesus came. Jesus came in the midst of intense suffering. And I think there's, there's something to learn from that. He came in the midst of suffering because we still suffer and he is here with us in the midst of our suffering. He is here with us in the midst of our suffering. In Matthew 5, Matthew writes about the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Jesus comes in the midst of suffering not necessarily to take us away from the suffering or to heal or to you know, like make it go away, but he comes in the midst of suffering to give comfort. And the closest thing I can think of in this situation is like as a parent, and those of you who are parents may understand that, you know, there are times as a parent when your child is hurting, and maybe they're little and they've fallen and they've hurt themselves and, you know, you can put a band-aid on it or kiss it or whatever, but you know it really doesn't make it better. But sometimes they get a little older, maybe they're an adolescent and they've just had their first heartbreak or they've had a really rough day, and like I have memories of my kids just crying and weeping and there's nothing I can do except wrap my arms around them and just say I'm here and I just get the sense that that's what Jesus is doing he comes in the midst of suffering and he wraps his arms around and he says I'm here I'll walk with you through it I will give you comfort I will give you strength the strength you need to make it through this terrible difficult time and I think Matthew is calling on this moment to say Jesus came not in, in the great times, not when, you know, not at the, the peak of Israel's history when David was king, right, or something like that. He comes in the midst of this suffering. And that tells us who he is and that tells us who God is. And then finally, in 2.23, after all this happened, Joseph takes his family. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth so was fulfilled with what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene now interesting there's no reference here on the slide to which prophet that comes from because there's no prophet who actually in the old testament at least that we know of that said he would be called a Nazarene no biblical scholar has been able to find anything in the prophets that says he will be called a Nazarene what are you doing, Matthew? I don't know. I don't think he's making it up. I think it was, I think it was some sort of traditional history thing. I, I think that, that there was a tradition of prophetic 
speaking that would have said something like this, but we don't have any record of it anyway. It's not written. Some, some scholars do think because the, the root of the Hebrew word uh, nazir means um, branch, there is a, a passage in Isaiah that says from the root of Jesse there will be a branch and he will be, you know, we, we talk about the, the branch of Jesse and stuff sometimes in those, in those holiday readings that we read in Isaiah. Um, so some, some scholars think that, but really there's no real direct connection. So let's just go ahead and, and call it what it is. Why is he pointing out that, that Jesus was born, or not born in, but lived in Nazareth? Why is he pointing out that he is from Nazareth? Well, what do we know about Nazareth? Honestly, we don't know much about Nazareth. Nazareth was so small and insignificant that it doesn't really show up in most of the historical writings, at least not until later. But we know multiple times throughout the Gospels, Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth, right? So he's like, you know, it's like pointing it out that, oh, yeah, he's the one from Nazareth. So it means something. And then we get a little glimpse in, later on in, uh, I think it's in John, actually, where uh, someone comes to Nathaniel and says, hey, you've got to see this guy, Jesus. He's doing some really great stuff. Um, and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Like, so we, we get the sense that Nazareth is not really well respected. Nazareth is not a place where wealthy people come. It's not a place where rich people come from. It's not a place where there's a lot of power and cloud. It's sort of a poor little shanty town, probably. And most of Jesus' carpentry work as a young apprentice and as a carpenter was probably in the bigger town next door, right? We, we just don't know much about Nazareth. So, so why is Matthew mentioning this? It's obviously important to him to point out that Jesus comes from Nazareth. And I think it's because Jesus has come, again, not to be with the wealthy and the powerful, but to be with the poor and the humble. Jesus has come to be with those who don't have means. He has come to be with those who are humble. If you want to be close to Jesus, you need to be close to the poor. I don't think there's a way you can look at Scripture and not see that. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do? To inherit eternal life. He's talking about big theological spiritual things. And Jesus says, you know what you got to do? You got to sell what you have and give it to the poor. Get connected with those who don't have anything. That's Jesus' backstory. And it's purposeful. There's a reason for that. Right? Um, there's a great writer. Um, he's an attorney named Brian Stevenson. He's actually from Delaware. But he does a lot of work in racial justice. And Brian Stevenson always talks about the idea of proximity. Brian Stevenson is an attorney. He works with death row inmates who are either wrongfully convicted or convicted as children, and he works, works to try to exonerate some of these people who need to be exonerated. Um, and, and, and mostly a lot of that is connected to the ideas of racial justice. But he says, if you really want to understand the problem, if you really want to understand how to help, you've got to have proximity. You've got to get close to those who are in need. You've got to get close to those who are marginalized. You've got to get close to those who are being put on the outsides of society. So whether it's the poor or whether it's the marginalized or whether it's those who are discounted, left out, knocked down, we need proximity. Jesus had proximity because he was born in the middle of it and he was raised in the middle of Nazareth where nobody had anything. And that's what Matthew is saying. That the kind of Messiah that came to redeem Israel is not one with, that came with power and wealth and reputation and clout. He is one who came 
in the lowliest of lows, one who came in the midst of suffering, one who came to the poor and to be with the poor. That is the Savior that we serve. I lost my connection if you hit the next slide. So I just want to finish up. I think Matthew is telling us who Jesus is. And by extension, he's telling us who God is. And by extension, he's telling us what God's kingdom should be like, right? And if we follow Jesus, our goal is to bring God's kingdom into existence. Our goal is to follow Jesus and be like Jesus in the ways that Matthew points out. Jesus came to be with us. He came to be with the powerless. He came, came to be with the failures. He came to be with the suffering and he came to be with the poor and the humble. If your discipleship, your following of Jesus, puts you in places of power and places of privilege and places of no suffering, right, then you might want to ask yourself, am I truly following Jesus or am I just following the American version of Christianity? It's really important. This is Jesus. And it doesn't look very comfortable, but it's what he's calling us to because it's who he is.